not. You have no idea what I can do. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And it's Pride Month, so we are going to be bringing you some movies featuring one of our most important gays, and some movies that are horror-adjacent and maybe homo-adjacent. That's right, and that's Ian McKellen. Sir Ian McKellen. Sir Ian McKellen. Magneto yes. himself. Gandalf himself. That's right, he is all those things. Mm-hmm. And a famous homosexual. That's true. That's right. We're being prideful. Hmm. But uh, the first of our two Ian McKellen movies is Apt Pupil. Apt Pupil is a 1998 American psychological thriller film based on the 1982 novella of the same name by Stephen King. The film was directed by Brian Singer and stars Ian McKellen and Brad Renfro. Set in the 1980s in Southern California, the film tells the story of a high school student, Tob Bowden, who discovers a fugitive Nazi war criminal, Kurt Dusander, living in his neighborhood under a pseudonym. A pseudonym? <laughs> the same. Singer is called Apt Pupil a study in cruelty, with Nazism serving as a vehicle to demonstrate the capacity of evil. The film was the subject of some controversy when legal allegations were brought against Singer by underage actors. And we'll get into that. I feel like we could not talk about this movie and talk about Brian Singer. We have to talk about Brian Singer. It has to happen, right? He's also another one of our, well, I was going to say important gays, but infamous gays. He's an infamous gay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay, listeners, be careful. You play with fire. This is Apt Pupil. I want to hear about it. Hear about what? Everything. What? Everything. Everything they're afraid to show us in school. Far from the shadow of suspicion. Far from the scene of any crime. Todd Bowden has discovered a secret. If you could let me in for a minute, I just want to talk. Talk? Don't have anything to say to you, boy. You were there. You did those things. I'm an American. You've no right to come here and say these lies about me. I have your fingerprints. I have your photographs. What do you want? I want to hear about it. Everything. Between innocence and experience. To the whole world, I am a monster. And you have known about me all this time between curiosity what did it feel like and conscience lying to judges and reporters isn't as easy as you think can you do that i know i can todd bowden is about to learn a valuable lesson i wonder if you'd mind if i ask you a personal question not at all what'd you do during the war (laughs) i know something about you So many things can happen in between. Each knew something the other wanted to keep secret. The boys ready to come down to the cellar. You're not going to believe this. If you don't believe in the existence of evil, you have a lot to learn. (laughs) 
was his name. He wanted to know everything. That was how he put it, yes. Everything. In 1984 Southern California, 16-year-old high school senior Todd Bowden, played by Brad Rinfo, Rip, has reached that special age in every boy's life where he finds himself obsessed with Nazis and the Holocaust. Unsatisfied with the weeks spent on the subject in history class, Todd does a little research at his local library. While riding the bus, he discovers that an elderly German man, Arthur Dinker, played by Ian McKellen, in his neighborhood resembles a high-ranking Nazi official. After a little sleuthing and a privacy invasion, he learns that Arthur is, in fact, Commandant Kurt Dusender, who had fled Berlin and has been living in the U.S. undetected. Todd blackmails Arthur with all of his evidence into telling him details of all the atrocities he committed during World War II. This goes on for months, and surprisingly, all the details start to affect Todd's relationships and his schoolwork. One day, while showering after gym, Todd has a particularly wet dream about men in a gas chamber. He can't sleep, but can't end his relationship with Arthur. Todd goes so far as to buy Arthur an SS uniform costume and makes him march in place in the kitchen. All this costume wearing and marching really gets Arthur thinking about his past and his Nazi life. He yearns to gas something, so he tries to kill a cat in his oven. That pussy is far too smart for that Nazi bullshit and escapes, leaving Arthur unfulfilled yet scratched. He counter-blackmails Todd by telling him that he would be held accountable for letting Arthur live undetected for so long after learning the truth. Fearing his implication, Todd disposes of all of his evidence and his Nazi shit. Todd's failing grades have caught up with him, and his guidance counselor, Edward French, played by David Schwimmer, requests a conference with his parents. Arthur poses as Todd's grandfather and convinces French that he will ensure that Todd turns his life around, and he does. Todd's grades go up, he starts dating, and seems to be spending less time with Arthur as a result. One night, while taking his trolley full of liquor home, Arthur is followed by a homelessman, who convinces him to let him inside for a drink, and maybe some sex. During their confrontation, Arthur attempts to kill him, but suffers a heart attack in the process. He calls Todd, who finishes the crime, cleans up the evidence, and calls an ambulance for Arthur. Coincidentally, Arthur is sharing his hospital room with a Holocaust survivor and is recognized for the second time in as many months. Ironically, after living for years in secret. This man informs the authorities, and Arthur is caught. Todd graduates as a valedictorian, while Arthur's home is searched and the homelessman's corpse is discovered. Todd is briefly questioned about his relationship with the old Nazi, but convinces the authorities that he knew nothing of his past. Arthur, realizing his identity has been hopelessly compromised, commits suicide in the hospital by giving himself an air embolism. French finally figures out that he's been had, and that Arthur wasn't Todd's grandfather. He confronts Todd while home alone and threatens to expose him to his parents. But Todd has gone full sociopath and is really good at blackmail at this point. He counter-threatens French by saying he'll accuse him of inappropriate sexual behavior, unless he remains quiet forever. French, knowing that he 
already looks guilty because of his pedo stash, complies, presumably leaving Todd to grow up to be the sociopath Nazi he always dreamt of being. The end. Womp womp. Womp womp. I feel like that's way more concise than the movie is. Possibly. Possibly. Yes. But not without any of that soul. That's right. It's soulless. It was a soulless synopsis. I was trying to make it funny, but I was like, this is about Nazis. Homeless men. Homeless homeless men. Brian Singer previewed out people at the Museum of Tolerance in LA's Holocaust Center to assess feedback from rabbis and others about referencing the Holocaust. With a positive response, the director proceeded with the film's release. After People was originally scheduled to be released in February of 1998, but the film's distributor moved the release date to autumn, feeling that belonged alongside other more serious-minded films. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival in September 1998. It was then commercially released on October 23, 1998 in 1,448 theaters in the United States and Canada, grossing $3.6 million opening weekend and placing ninth at the box office. Whatever, they tried to go for Halloween. Yeah, please. Other films in the top ten that weekend included Pleasantville, I love that movie, Mm -hmm. Practical Magic, Bride of Chucky, and Beloved. Really? Yeah. B-A-L. I had to add this in because I know you love Pleasantville and when I was writing that sentence I was like oh I really want to watch that (laughs) app people would go on to gross less than 9 million at the box office against a budget of 14 million leading many to consider it a commercial failure especially when compared to Singer's previous film his breakout hit The Usual Suspects made a lot of money Kaiser Soze oh my god I've only seen that movie one time that's all you need Uh After People holds a 53% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score at 56%. The site's consensus reads, a somewhat disturbing movie that works as a suspenseful thriller, yet isn't completely satisfying. Roger Ebert, reviewing for the Chicago Sun-Times, wrote that the film was well-made by Brian Singer and well-acted, especially by Ian McKellen, but that, quote, the film reveals itself as unworthy of its subject matter, end quote. The critic felt that the offensive material lacked a social message or an overarching purpose, the so what, as we call it here at the Film Flammers, and found the film's later scenes to be exploitative. Yeah. Fair enough. Janet Maslin of the New York Times applauded the production value of Brian Singer's direction. Liking Newton Thomas's Siegel's handsomely acted shot cinematography and John Ottman's stunningly edited work, Maslin wrote of McKellen and Renfro's performances, quote, Both actors play their roles so trickily that tensions escalate until the horror grows unimaginably gothic. So wordy. The critic felt that as the film approached the end, the story's cleverness is noticeably on the wane. I don't know about that, Janet. I never really liked Janet Maslin's quotes. Kathleen Murphy of Film Comment called McKellen and Renfro's performances skin crawling, but felt that that it did not complete the film. Murphy wrote, the acting makes you wish people had the art and the courage to actually look into evil's awful abyss. 
The critic perceived that Apt Pupil came off as a conventional horror film, that it had Stephen King's characteristically unsavory touches, and that Singer's inept direction trivializes the characters and the subject matter. I don't I don't think so. No, and I feel like we've talked about Stephen King several times in this podcast already, right? And we know that he can start a story, but sometimes his endings leave a little something to be desired. I was going to say it's a story. It's... Yeah. It was. I think it was beautifully directed, beautifully edited, yeah, well put together, definitely well acted. But mm-hmm. it's missing something. Yeah, and I don't. I don't think that's. It's not a production problem. It's missing a fucking protagonist. Is what it's missing. It really is. I mean, God, I, that's one of the things that I want to talk about later on. It's just like who's the villain? You have to root for someone, and you don't know who to fucking root for there's because no one there's for no one to root for. You know, and I mean, I just feel like at the at the 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 heart of it, and I'm sure we'll get into this when we talk about it, like. This this suffers from a Stephen Kingism, you know, a little bit. But he he usually has protagonists, even with his shitty endings. Yeah, you know, he does. This one doesn't have. It's not a shitty ending. It's just not really much of one. Nope. And it doesn't have a fucking protagonist. Mm-hmm. It does have some accolades, though. Yeah. Um, at the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, it was nominated for Best Wide Release Film, Best Actor Ian McKellen, and Best Screenplay and Best Score. Okay. And at the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Performance by a Younger Actor for Brad Renfro and Best Director, but lost to Michael Bay for Armageddon. <laughs> How embarrassing. <laughs> and Best Writing. <laughs> but it won for Best Horror Film. Wow. And Best Supporting Actor for McKellen. I know. I was I was kind of surprised. Yeah, I was. I'm very surprised that it won Best Horror Film. What was it up against? I d- didn't even. I mean, I looked, but I, I know what you did last World War. Something like yes, <laughs> obviously. I was 1998. I mean, it was post Scream, but I was just like, wow, this won Best Horror Film. But I mean, I think that's that's pretty high praise for these like accolades for a movie that was kind of like middling when it came to critics and made necessarily no money. Yeah, I I remember when this came out. And I, I saw it on, I think, DirecTV at the time, you know, because it was playing all the time. And I enjoyed the shit out of it. You know, I enjoyed all those flops that came out back then, like Cutthroat Island. <laughs> infamous, infamous bomb there. For real. Um, I haven't seen it since, but I, I've seen this one at least one other time, maybe in the early thousands. And it's been about 20 years since so I've seen it. I saw this while I was, well, when it came out on video, right? Because I was working at a video store. Yeah. I didn't see it in the theater, but I had read the short story like I'm sure you have yeah. in middle school, right? But I, out of all the short stories in that collection, I've only read this one the one time. Like it wasn't a satisfying read for me. Everything else in those that novella collection, like the Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. um, the Body, which is what Stand by Me is, and the Breathing Method. I was like stepping on my thumb facts. Oh, I'm sorry. But those, I mean like two of those movies are excellent films. Yeah. Right. And like that, that story, this story just didn't really speak to me. And the movie was okay, you know, and I, they haven't really, they haven't made a film version of the breathing method that I know of, but that was a really good story too. Mm. This one's kind of like meh. And so this is only the second time I've seen this film. I, I don't know. Like based on, on your knowledge of having read the novella, 
Do you think this is one of the, the the best adaption that could exist for it? For I don't remember enough about the novella. I mean, I literally read this when I was like, well, you just said it grade. wasn't your favorite of all of those. I just you know? didn't like it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, like the body or stand by me is what people would call it now. And then the Shawshank Redemption are so fucking engaging and have such good characters. You know what I mean? They stand yeah. out. And I've read those things multiple times. Out of people was a one time read. And I was just like, I don't I don't care enough about it to revisit it and maybe that's what it's like you're supposed to care about it because it's of the subject matter but again it's so one note it's like we were talking about this a little bit before this recording and you know we're talking about how it's not a feel-good movie yet again Mm -hmm. after coming out of you know a 24 month where we're talking about these wet grinch salads you know um with a lot of meaning and layers and things like that you know sometimes too much stuffed into it like with midsummer yes but in this it's not so much a wet grinch salad so much as it is just so one note yeah Right. It's miss. It's it's a tale of a cat and mouse game between two antagonists, Mm -hmm. you know, and you need something like uh, other movies can do that a little bit. If it's a little bit more separated, and you have protagonists like Silence of the Lambs. Right. There are two major and classic classical antagonists in that with Buffalo Bill and, of course, Hannibal Lecter. But you've got a cop or something. Could we not have like David Schwimmer's character, but, you know, maybe cast differently, um, you know, be the, the <laughs> protagonist here. And there, I mean, and that's the whole thing. I mean, like, I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about like the nature of there not being a protagonist, but two people that you would consider to be antagonists. And I was like, but does this movie even have a villain? Like, really? To me, it does. It's all all kinds of villains. Like to me, like the breath of fresh air in this movie comes later on, like almost at the end, but it's too late. Right. And so we'll get into that a little bit later too, okay, because good, we I, really need to talk about our cast. Yes, we do. And I, I feel like that will lead into other conversations. So, yeah. Right. And so Ian McKellen as Arthur Dinker, right. Uh, or really Kurt Dusender, I guess. Mm-hmm. So Brian Singer had enjoyed McKellen in, um, John Schlesinger's 1995 film Cold Comfort Farm, which I'd never heard or seen of. I've seen it. It's good. It's good. Okay. Uh, So he invited the actor to take on this role. And the character's language was written originally for like a very stoic German. But Brian Singer felt like McKellen's complex personality could contribute to the character in a really good way. So the director said of choosing McKellen, quote, I felt if I could combine his complexity, his colorfulness to the stoic German character, it would create a character that, although evil, would garner a little bit more sympathy and would be more enjoyable for the audience to watch, end quote. And I agree. I completely agree with that. Because you are always tempted to feel a little sorry for him. Does he feel remorse? And as you watch this, like, you don't really think so. Like, he's really just trying to get the fuck away away with it. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like that does become apparent throughout the movie, you know. But when the, when the whole thing first starts, like, you really don't know the character enough, right? You know, it, it could go either way. Like, yeah, I have avoided capture and I've avoided prosecution and death, essentially. Yeah. But, you know, you have no idea, like, what he's done in his time in America. You know, does he still feel these ways, right? And then it gets to a point, too, where I feel like Brad Renfro's character is really starting to pull these things out of him again. And I'm like, oh, maybe he just forgot about it. And so, like, circumstantially, he's starting to remember, like, how he felt when he was a Nazi. I started feeling really uncomfortable when he first starts telling the stories about the atrocities. And they don't lean into that. No. Like, I felt really uncomfortable, like, sick in my stomach, like, listening to some of these stories. And then Brad Renfro's character, Asian McKellen's character, like, how did that make you feel? And he has this tiny little smile on his face. 
before he talks about how horrible it was or whatever. And it's just like gross, mm-hmm. you know, maybe really uncomfortable. And they, they run away from that real quick and then they move on and you don't really hear any more stories after that. No, they don't. They just imply that the stories continue and that they're really affecting they show some nightmares and stuff. Yeah. That's it. You know, and that, that, that particular shower scene, you know, but, and I mean, the thing is that like, we're going to get into Brad Riffer's character in a minute, but he, he's so confusing in this movie. That character is super confusing to me. Oh, really? Yeah. So let's continue to talk about Ian McKellen before we yeah. get Brad Riffer. So he was attracted to the role because he was impressed with singers, the usual suspects, which everyone was at the time. Yeah. And saw the role of Dusender as a quote, nice meaty part and difficult. Yeah. Later on, he would, he would actually acknowledge that he's kind of one note. It is. It is kind of one note. And I, but he'd I, had a lot to do as like, he acted the shit out of this part. He, he really a did a whole bunch of subtlety that wasn't there before, just in the words. But I feel like that's what Ian McKellen does yeah. anyway. I think he's just a really gifted actor, both of like stage and screen. At first I felt like I had to kind of ease into his performance because at first I was like, he's about to like eat this entire set. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is some scenery chewing going on. <laughs> But again, and I, I also attribute that to Ian McKellen too. I feel like anytime he's in a movie, there's going to be some scenery chewing. I just, that's who he is as an actor, right? I expect that from him. So, uh, but this is like a banner year for him, obviously. Really? Yeah. I mean, so like apps people and gods and monsters, spoiler alert, is our next movie. Yeah. 1998. Yeah. I mean, huge year for Ian McKellen. And then Brian Singer would go on to do X-Men. Yes. And he would play Magneto. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, before that, he was hired probably in 1998 to go in 1999 and start filming Lord of the Rings before X-Men even came out. He had to finish X-Men filming X-Men before he could actually go and film Lord of the Rings. So none of the, like this hadn't come out, like X-Men hadn't come out before Lord of the Rings. Like he just had this weird, huge heyday. And the only thing I remember seeing him in only thing ever as like a teenager at the time was um, the shadow where he plays like an old man, grandpa in there. And he's playing these old men and he's in his fifties. Yeah. He just yeah. has that look about him, though. He looks older than he really is. Or maybe it's makeup. Who knows? Stepping on my own phone facts now. Oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, you did it this time. All I right, did. good. I did. So, yeah. Um, anyway, Brad Renfro as Todd Bowden. Rip. Rip. Yeah. Brian Singer described the character, and I think this is important, and he says, quote, I don't believe for one minute that Todd Bowden was as pure as driven snow. The capacity to blackmail an old man, obviously there's a search for something going on that's a good hard step beyond innocence. I think he had it within him, some emptiness that needed fulfillment and taken to a new place, a new direction. His school, his parents, his environment weren't doing it for him. This particular individual came along before some other, but it perhaps could have been drugs. It could have been rape. Todd was probably not a very good guy, but that kind of a bad guy can exist within a lot more people than we realize. <coughs> like himself. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> But I think that's really, really true. I think that, like, to me, Brad Renfro's character, like, as a kid watching this, I thought, oh, he's just, like, really into it and interested. And he wants to, like, he's just really has this morbid fascination and curiosity. He's taking advantage of the situation and he's smart. No. As an adult, I watch this. He's a fucking sociopath. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. As simple as, simple as day. It's as pure as driven snow. Yeah. <laughs> um, which his character clearly is not. You know, I so I was thinking about this while watching the movie and 
like when people are very, very smart, they get oftentimes bored or whatever, and they will latch on to whatever their brain is obsessed with at that particular moment, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least that's what people stereotype like very, very smart individuals is doing, mm-hmm. right? And they're also very adept at being able to like play people and talk to people. And it's very Hannibal Lecter, right? The thing is, is like with this particular character, he's such a teenager, in this movie, he acts like a teenager. But he also didn't seem to be capable of any kind of empathy, and he was doing serial killer-like things by, like, killing small animals. Like Yeah, but the, then he would the also... The broken wing or whatever the fuck it was supposed to be. He would turn around and say something like, of course I'm not doing good at school because all the stories that you're telling me are keeping me up at night. Right. You know, it's like you, you're you seeking something out and you can't take what you've asked for. You know, it's a very teenagery thing to do. I don't think it's till the end of the movie and the final scenes that we kind of realize exactly like what kind of adult he's going to be. Does that make sense? Yeah. He's going to be a CEO. Yes. He'll be like murdering people corporatically. Like, I don't. Whatever. Sending rockets to Mars. <laughs> whatever. Inventing Twitter. He's going to. You know, invent Amazon. I don't. I don't fucking know. But I mean, he will step on anybody he needs to, and he he learned these things very early on. He's a fucking sixteen year old senior for crying out loud. Yeah. You know, I mean, like he's not even like he has no peers at all, and he just has latched on to something that he finds fascinating, and then has lucked into like having someone there to tell him exactly what's going on and someone who doesn't mind being a fucking puppet because he was already someone's puppet, you know, I don't know. I, the whole time I was watching this on this rewatch, I was just like, who, who really is the fucking antagonist in this movie? Who is the villain? Yes. And the answer is yes. Yeah. I mean, at the (laughs) end of the day, it is yes and no to me. I was just, I don't know that either one does anything well, they kill somebody, which is terrible, obviously. But I was just like, I, I don't even know where I'm going with this. I mean, like, I felt they're, bad. They're both evil characters. Yeah, I just, I think I've seen eviler characters. Of course. You know? Yeah, but this is real world evil, right? This isn't, this is Squirrel Covers evil. This is not, you know, <laughs> yeah, Monster of the Ring evil, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just unsatisfied by the fucking antagonist. Yeah, because it, it does play with that gray area with both characters. It, yeah. it tries to tempt you into feeling kind of sorry for Ian McKellen, who is a human rights abuser, you know? For sure. You know, and and tries to move on with his life and, you know, has to deal with something that he did many, many years ago, but doesn't show much remorse for. So it keeps playing with your emotions there. Right. These are uncomfortable feelings. And with Brad Renfro's character, you really want him, you know, you're rooting for him. But then what he does to kind of survive for self-fulfillment and does to this this old man, regardless of what he's done in the past, is also kind of unforgivable. It's true. And so it's like. Can you be okay with like evil people doing evil things to evil people, you know, and it's just like it plays with a lot of interesting emotions in a way that other movies really don't and other stories usually don't. And I think that's very interesting. It has value in and of itself a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would say that it makes you think. And it makes you feel things that you normally wouldn't, you know. It does. Because, I mean, like, honestly, I was just like, why do I feel bad for this old man? He's a fucking Nazi, you know. And I was just like, had he not tried to murder someone, you know, or kill a cat. You know, if he were just there, like being this boy's puppet, you know, like what I really consider him to be a villain only based on the things that he's done in the past. You know what I mean? It's kind of an emotionally confusing movie on purpose by design. Yes. And story, you know, I mean, maybe I'm not giving enough credit to King either, but maybe I should go back and reread that. Well, there's also more things that Brian Singer layered on top, you know, being a gay man. 
Wow. So, oh, that is true because there's lots of that to talk about. Anyway, let me open this drink. Brad Renfro. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, you know, he was big around that time, right? His first movie was The Client with yeah. Susan Sarandon, right? And before being cast in The Client, he had been living in a trailer park with his grandmother. Hmm. Right. And then he went on to do films like Tom and Huck and then Sleepers, which is also fucking wet grand salad. My God. My, yes. Um, before going on to do Apt Pupil. And after Apt Pupil, he didn't really get big roles again. And he ultimately died 10 years later of a heroin overdose at the age of 25. His grandmother died 17 days later of natural causes. Yeah, I remember. I was thinking about that last night, too, when I was watching this movie. I was just like, I know that he died and I couldn't remember why I had to look it up. I was like, was it suicide? And I was like, no, it's accidental. And he had gotten better too. Like he was, you know, he had been seen, like he just had a big relapse. Relapse. Yes. Yeah. How did Jonathan Brandis die? Cause that made me think about Jonathan Brandis too. I was thinking about nothing but this movie. You know, a kid from Sequest. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, didn't someone else die around that same time? I was like, oh, Jonathan Brandis. <laughs> Uh, these two are both very, very good in this movie, though. I mean, I will say that these performances are are good. I feel like McKellen is a lot better than Brad Renfro. You know what I mean? But he had yeah. years of experience. Of course. Know? One's Shakespearean and one's just like kind of shows a depth beyond his years. Yes. A bit. I mean, he he plays an angsty teen very, very well. Right. And in, in a believable way. And he probably was an angsty teen. You know what I mean? He's drawing yeah. from like real life experience or whatever. But mm-hmm. I mean, like he he's good in this movie. He's scary in this movie. You know who's also good? David Schwimmer. Is he? I like to make fun of him, but yeah. he was good. He was fine. Yeah. He's serviceable. Yeah. I he forgot played. that he had that fucking pedo stash. Though. Yeah. Todd's guidance counselor. Because when he showed up, I was just like, oh, God, David Schwimmer. And randomly Joshua Jackson as his best friend. Yes. And I completely forgot about that. I was <laughs> like, Joshua Jackson. <laughs> and uh bruce davison played his father who's always good and he would go on to play senator kelly in brian singer's x-men that's right uh and then ann dowd i don't know many things that she's in but she played his mom isn't she's such a good character actress she's been in a lot she's been in a lot of things right and you know i saw her name in the credits and i was like oh ann dowd and then i was just like who the fuck is she playing in this movie? And it wasn't until she was like halfway through the movie and she's on the phone. I was like, that's in doubt. His mom's like, she looks so young in this almost unrecognizable, Mm. but my God, like in the last like 20 years, she will take these like really small parts and just do it so well. She's such a good character actress. Have you seen the show? The leftovers from HBO? No, she's just fucking a revelation in that. She's such a good actress and I love her so much. And she has, next to nothing to do in this movie you know but yeah i was flabbergasted to see her look is so young speaking of character actors elias codius casey yeah. jones himself That's uh right. who, who, where else have we talked about him we've talked about him a bunch fallen you yeah right right he was in fallen and mm-hmm. then he was also in uh shutter island he was in shutter island yeah wait did we do a patreon on that or we just watched it together? maybe we just watched it i don't know that might have been pre-podcast when i made you watch that it's right but yeah, I mean, and he's he's always he's always good too. He's another good character. He's actor. very good. I never understand why Elias Codius isn't like big. Like maybe because there's already a Robert De Niro. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, he's just good at the smaller roles that he gets. You know? Yeah. And I mean, this role is small, but like he's really good in this movie for the brief moments that he's in it. Yeah. 
And then Michael Byrne, who is always makes an impression whenever he shows up on screen. Always, always, always. And he played the Holocaust survivor in the bed next to Ian McKellen. Yes. And I feel like that that crescendo moment. That moment when he cries, I was like, we needed that way earlier. Like, yeah. we need to be following this character kind of as a B story randomly. You know, like, that needed to happen, I think, for the real emotional heart of this film to show a real, like, survivor, like, uh, protagonist. Yes. Because his moment at the end is like the best acting in the whole fucking movie. It really like, I is. I was right there with him. I was like, holy shit. It doesn't really bring it home. The actual hurt. Uh, so like telling the, the doing the atrocities from Ian McKellen, well, really well acted, mm-hmm. makes me sick of my stomach, but the actual like feeling of it, he really brought that. He and does. Man. That fucking, the moment he is in that bed and just like going about his night or whatever. And then he has that realization and you see his it eyes open. His face. It was so well directed and edited. Yes. Oh my God. I love that fucking moment in this movie. I was just like, Oh my God, you are so wrapped up. And just like the sudden like click in that man's brain. And he you know? like stuffs his hand into his mouth to prevent himself from screaming. And then like, and then he has to like hobble him. to tell someone, you know what I mean? And later on you find out like what happened to his family and what, you know, um, you know, Ian McKellen's character did his his wife and two daughters right. died in Bergen-Belsen or Auschwitz or wherever they were, mm-hmm. and he had survived. And you know, and you'd like you start to realize, like you're right, this is exactly the emotional impact that this movie needs because that man has had to live with everything that happened to him his entire life, right? And it goes to show you, you cannot forget anything like that. Like it just took him brief moments to look over at a sleeping man in the bed next to him and just like the click. The click in that actor's eyes. He's such a good actor in this moment. I oh just loved God. it so much. Yeah, it gave me chills. Yes. I just loved his performance. And I was just like, really, this should be his story. It deserves to be his story. And we've had that movie before, but not really, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I don't know. It's just like, that, that's what that was the moment that came too late for me. Yeah. To really, like, save this movie from being, like, protagonistless. Protagonistless. Yeah. Oh. Good cast, though. I mean, stacked really? cast. Yeah. For sure. So let's talk about the movie that was was this movie, but didn't happen. Oh, oh, okay. yeah. So when Stephen King's novella *Apt Pupil* was published as part of his collection of different seasons in 1982, mm-hmm. producer Richard Cobritz optioned the feature film rights, and so Cobritz met with actor James Mason. <laughs> James Mason. Oh my god! To play the novella, novella's war criminal Curtin Tissender, but Mason died. In 1984, before production as a result of a heart attack. So the producer also approached Richard Burton. (gasps) (laughs) But he was too busy doing Exorcist 2. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Burton also died in August that same year. And by 1987, production on the film began with Nicole Williamson. Do you know who that is? I do not. It he played familiar. Merlin in Excalibur. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like the mentor in Spawn. He has a way with words as well. Uh, and he was going to be cast. And 17-year-old Rick Schroeder was cast as Todd <laughs> Bowden. So in that year, Alan Bridges began directing the film. And after 10 weeks of filming, the production suffered from a lack of funds. And the film had to be placed on hold. So Kubrick sought to, not, not Kubrick, 
Kubritz sought to revive production, but when the opportunity came a year later, Schroeder had aged too considerably for the film to actually work. So 40 minutes of usable footage was abandoned and will never be seen by the light of day. It is never to be found again. Mm. I don't want to see Nicole Williamson doing a German accent. Yeah. Such a way with words, though. I mean, like, sometimes a work has to sit for a little bit before you can adapt it. And I feel like that would have been the first movie produced out of that collection of novellas. And that doesn't seem right to me either, but that's subjective. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. But, um, Brian Singer had enjoyed the story much like you when he was a kid, you know? So he was only 19 and had always wanted to direct a screen version of it. And so he paid his friend, screenwriter, Brandon Boyce to write a uh, spec script for it. And they provided, a first draft of the script to Stephen King and a copy of Singer's film, The Usual Suspects, which hadn't actually been publicly re- released yet. Oh. And uh, impressed, uh, Stephen King optioned the rights to the director for $1. As he does. Arranging to be compensated when the film was released. Wah, wah. So Singer turned down directing opportunities, meanwhile, after The Usual Suspects, for things like The Truman Show and The Devil's Own. Oh. After the success of The Usual Suspects. And so... He instead pursued our pupil and is quoted to say, quote, it was a very dark subject matter and it was something that came from passion. He acknowledged in retrospect that our pupil wasn't really supposed to be a big success. I don't see how this movie could be. No, really. It's just, no, it doesn't go far enough to be like Halloween horror. Nope. And doesn't go far enough in the other direction to be a serious drama. Yeah, it's not Oscar bait enough. It could have easily been. It could have been if they just made it a little bit more artful. You know, or brought in that other character, like I said. Yeah. Just made it give it a little bit of extra dimension. It needed something. And the thing is that, like, The Usual Suspects was serious Oscar bait, right? That movie sort of came out of nowhere and was a huge sleeper success. And everyone just was like, in awe of that movie. I mean, I was one of them. The first time I saw The yeah, Usual Suspects, the only time I've seen it, you know? I was just like, this movie is amazing. Another it's, one of his compatriots. He, he basically built the career of Kevin Spacey and look where Kevin Spacey is now. I mean, they share a lot of similarities. But yeah, I mean, like, after people being the follow-up to that does not seem like a normal progression of, of that kind of director. Mm-hmm. Getting that kind of, like, recognition for that particular movie. And so, yeah, I, I found that after people was a really odd choice for him at the time. I don't know. And then X-Men. Like, I, I was actively angry that he was going to be directing because I'd seen the usual specs. I was like, that, why didn't you get Spielberg? Why didn't you get one of these other people, you know? I was a kid, you know, didn't really understand. And uh, what what it could be, you know, and why they chose certain people. And I certainly thought Ian McKellen was too old, having seen him in the shadow and at Pupil. And then saw that he was going to be Gandalf. And I, was, I had seen X-Men by that point. So I was like, oh, okay, well, that could work, I guess. Yeah. You know, so it was just, uh, it was interesting to see how things worked out, you know, but it's kind of interesting because Brian Singer really kind of handpicked Ian McKellen, even though Ian McKellen, Sir Ian McKellen was huge in, you know, the stage and some screen, obviously, mm-hmm. but not in the way of pop, pop, you know, popcorn culture. I have no problem. With they exploded. I think that he's great. In X-Men. Yeah, I think it was fine. Singer said that King's ultimate response to the film, despite some changes made to the source material, quote, Stephen loved it. He seemed to think I captured the mood of the piece. He probably did. Yeah. I mean, there's only one kind of mood you could have with this kind of story. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you don't have to like stray too far to capture that mood. Yeah. But I don't know. I just, again, I, I need to reread that novella because I don't, 
I, I don't remember the differences between the movie and the and the source material. I'm sure there are some, but like I just I just didn't like it. You know what I mean? Like I just I did not like that story. It's not even a novel. It's kind of like the shortest part of that collection of novellas too. Mm. Like just. It didn't really have a so what, and it didn't have an ending, and it, it well, and it didn't. And I mean, like, like, why did I spend my time? Yeah, like based on the things we've already talked about, I think that the source material suffers from the exact same thing, right? There's really no one to root for in that, and it made me feel bad. Yep. I mean, I was young. I was like eighth grade, ninth grade, young, and I was like, this is depressing. So yeah, it can be. I but mean, they did achieve. Uh, like we said, they did achieve the feel of that novella. And I think partially, not only done by the actors and, of course, you know, their screen treatment by um, Bruce, whatever his name is, but mm-hmm. by cinematographer Newton Thomas Siegel. Right. He also did The Usual Suspects. He did Fallen. But this guy also went on to work with Brian Singer on X-Men and X-Men 2 and a bunch of other movies post that time. I mean, this movie does look really good. It does. It looks really well done. And I'm always impressed by John Ottman. Because he is also a very close collaborator with Brian Singer, and he is a producer, but he also does, he's a film composer and the film editor. So he produced, and I believe produced, he's produced other things, but uh, he was the music composer and film editor. And he also was the film editor and composer for X-Men and X-Men 2. Really? Yeah. So he, I love multi-talents like that. I, I thought the music of this movie was really good. Right. Yeah. Nothing to write home about. I mean, I it was it, it was worked. noticeable. I think the and editing is better than the, the yes, the, for sure. And I saw like during the opening credits that the name was the same, and I was just like, "Wow, how often does that happen?" And I guess you just answered that question with him. But I was just like, "How must it be to like be thinking about the film score whilst you're editing a movie?" You know what I mean? It seems like it would be easy to do, but I don't know. Maybe not. He said normally an editor will score scenes with temporary music from CDs and so forth, but nothing I could find worked for this film. And yet his score in t- at times sounds a little Schindler's listy and a little yeah. copycatty, you know, which is basically what this movie is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Still though, it's impressive. It is, especially since there's so many heavy themes that it has to support. <laughs> Segway. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was masterful. <laughs> and masturbatory. <laughs> yes. Uh, there are. Th- <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is themes calling the movie. I mean, I, I feel like I've just said that about everything else we've talked about in a 24 months. Too, but like. I think at the time you might have had trouble saying that a theme of the movie versus like a plot point was the obsession with Nazism and the Holocaust. But I think now looking back in retrospect, especially with seeing things that happen like January 6th and like, you know, like these people exist, they're out there. Right. And, you know, maybe for more political reasons, you know, Brian Singer did say this was a study of cruelty, but the obsession in this film isn't necessarily about racism or xenophobia or hate. It's about malice, especially concerning Todd, Brad Renfro's character, right? Yeah. The power of something so infamous in the past that it has an unbreakable hold on the present. There's nothing so horrifying to normal empathetic humans as the Holocaust and nothing so seductive to sociopaths or psychopathic narcissistic sadists or Mm -hmm. any combination thereof looking for a North Star. There's a power and an achievement there 
in the Holocaust that is incredibly attractive to them for whatever reason to these crazy evil sadists. I mean, that's incredibly true and very well put. You know what I mean? Because it is like a shining achievement of what they could possibly do. I mean, there are there are people in the world who who feel that way, right? Feel like Hitler. Almost like they don't care about what they did or why, mm-hmm. but that they were able to achieve it. Yeah. And the power that they held. Yes. To do it. Right. And it's more about that for these particular brand of psychopaths versus the ones that, you know, dig deep into their own xenophobia and racism and all of that. And that's a very different type of evil by choice. I think this type of evil is very different, right? We look at the sociopathology of this, which technically there is no real thing as a sociopath, right? Like it's a collection of different symptoms and different psychological things. That's true. Put that aside. But there's a nature versus nurture argument to this. When I really thought about it, I thought like, if we're going to put up the evil of Ian McKellen's character, this old Nazi is trying to get away with it, whether he feels remorse or not, versus, you know, at the end of the day, he was kind of following orders, right? You know, versus the other type of evil, which is Brad Renfro's type of evil. So it's kind of this nature versus nurture. Ian McKellen's nurture versus Brad Renfro's nature. Talent versus experience. Well, I also think too, like... We just spent an entire episode talking about like someone's susceptibility to join a cult. Yeah. Right. And it's very similar in this particular movie. Like a certain kind of person will be susceptible to ideas. Right. So we have Ian McKellen's character who obviously joined the Nazi party, maybe out of like, you know, had to do it. Who knows? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of those people did a lot of their, like if you look at Nuremberg, right. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are saying like, they're going to give me a choice. Shoot that person in the back of the head or I'm going to get shot in the back of the head. That's basically what you boil it down to. And so it wasn't so simple for a lot of these people, but eventually they got numb to it. And the the points where they could have done something, that's why we had these trials. They did, you know, and so it's like, I don't want to get too much into that, right? Because there's a whole argument there that I'm uncomfortable with. But like, I feel like when you pit this like experienced evil where it was kind of happenstance and circumstantial, to a certain degree, argumentally, based on, let's say he's an avatar for the general experience of someone that might have gone through a Nuremberg trial versus Brad Renfro's active sociopath, born this way, natural evil, who it's, you know, I feel like that natural evil, the nature is going to outwit or win the nurture every time. Well, I don't, I don't even think that, because I was going to say, like, I, I don't feel like Ian McKellen's character like lucked into that or whatever. He did it because he felt like he had to do it. I felt like he was good at it. And I felt like he, he lucked into it almost like he he discovered that he was more and more okay with it. You could see that he was almost reminiscing over his horror of it at the time. Yes. You know, it was a horrifying sight. We never forgot it. You know, the children were on bottom, blah, 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 blah. He's remembering it, not in the most positive way, but thinking about the power of it. Mm-hmm. He remembers it's a mixed bag for him. Well, I think that the people this this has to be true of the Nazi party anyway, or th- that particular time, like the people who were good at what they did, who kind of maybe started to relish in it, right? Yeah, people who are already like maybe on their way to being a sociopath. Took advantage of the situation. Yes, and like and those are the people who got promoted in the party. And he wasn't like a lower ranking official; he was a fucking commandant. You know, he must have done things and was okay with it to be promoted, right? Mm-hmm. So clearly. He was a bad person. He he can't say, like, either yeah. I was going to die or I had to do it. He liked it. 
Would he have been if there had been no war? We don't know. No, we don't. We don't know what what that would have happened. But we certainly know that Brad Renfro would have become something. Yes. Whether or not he had this man to learn from, to glean information from. Like Brian Singer said, it was going to be drugs or or rape or something. He was going to be a bad man. And he is still going to continue to be a bad man. Because at the end of this movie, he gets away with it. He gets away with it. And he gets to grow up. And not in the wholesome Nev Campbell at the end of Wild Things way. No, that's right. He's not like, he's not some sort of mastermind who's like, you know, steering a yacht. He's getting rid of the other bad people. <laughs> that's right. You know, for to your like, own benefit. To, to yacht off into the sunset. The gray area character that we, we kind of want is one of the heroes of a thousand faces, right? Yeah. But like this character is not a hero of a thousand faces. <laughs> no, he's the farthest thing away from a fucking hero to begin with. I mean, I just, I don't know. But like, yeah, I, I feel like you're right. I, I feel like Brad Renfro's nature is present and he happened to find someone to nurture that nature enough to set him on like, the most destructive path ever. Like, yeah, it's it's such a weird thing. It's like people were marketing this, I think, as cat and mouse, like a cat and mouse game, you know, right. thriller. But it's not. It's more like hyena and cat or something, you know? I mean, there are just some scenes in this movie where I'm like, all right. Like there's this frailish old man, right? Who is on the outside horrified by opening a gift that is a uniform that he wants more, right? And then like how easily he slips back into like March, right face, right face. Took him a bit. Yeah. He had, he'd gotten used to the idea of feeling guilty, I think, and, and not feeling okay about talking about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And finally when it was made okay and he was forced kind of a pseudo gunpoint, Mm-hmm. You know, that's also kind of an interesting segue into our next theme. Well, good. I mean, because I, I feel like I feel like there's a lot of nurture on both ends. You know what I mean? In this. And I feel like I feel like there's nature on both ends and there's nurture on both ends. And the two feed off of each other and like positive ways for them and negative ways for them. Like they, they don't care about each other yeah. at all. Yeah. You know? But I mean, like if you talk about, you know, this is a nitpick. It really is like, but it, it's, it feels like, you know, when they both fell off the, the sociopath tree, you know, Brad <laughs> Renfro hit a few more branches. On the Probably, way down. You yes. know what I mean? <laughs> God, I love that analogy. I can picture it in my head. <laughs> oh, oh, my nose. <laughs> well, speaking of which, um, homoeroticism and homophobia. Happy Pride Month. We're in, <laughs> we're in added layer. Right. So it's alluded that Brad Renfro's character of Todd might actually be gay. Yeah. I mean, like his girlfriend or quote unquote girlfriend seems to throw that in his face a lot. Well, in the face that he makes when she says it, he kind of looks kind of thoughtfully and, you know, introspectively. "Hmm, Maybe. Maybe I am a queer, you know. And then it's kind of is alluded that Ian McKellen's character might be gay, you know, despite all of these other things. And then there's like weird intricacies of Ian McKellen and Brad Renfro's characters together. Like Elias Codius's character alludes that he thought they were in a relationship and then propositions him for sex. Yeah. And then uh, there's a strange power dynamic that's traded between uh, Ian McKellen and Brad Renfro's characters. Like when he tells him to get into that costume in March. And then like there's shots of Todd Bowden's uh, reaction, Brad Renfro's character that are this low angle, which reflect the sexual difference between the characters. Like Todd is masculinized as the bearer of the sexual gaze. And then Kurt Dusender is feminized as the object of the gaze. And then the cutting between Todd and Kurt's corroborates a homoerotic arrangement of images, which visualizes the latent homoeroticism of the scene 
from the novella, which wasn't really overtly stated. No. So when Kurt speeds up his march and Todd tells him to stop, the speed-up shot reverses and it radically ruptures the structure of power where Bowden loses control of his sadistic power over Dusender. And it's really, really interesting because he almost does it in like this weird feminist way at the very end where he kind of puts that flourish on the march and the, and the Z the yeah. Heil or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a really, really interesting editing moment in there. And the the how how close they are together a lot of these scenes like there's this weird kind of sexual tension there and it keeps hitting on that theme over and over in different ways the whole thing with david schwimmer's character at the end the the counselor yeah you know with it being kind of overtly stated i feel like if this movie if he was making this movie 20 years later he would have made it way more even more overt you know because this is of course during when it wasn't as okay to show or allude to it a little bit like maybe just like the, the, the gay, you know, subtext is not necessarily has to be subtext is what I'm trying to say. No, you're right. These yeah. days, like it did then. It had Unless to be it's very about AIDS. Someone literally dying of AIDS. They couldn't really tell a gay story. No, they couldn't. You know? And the thing is, I mean, there, there are some clues into this anyway, like at the very opening moments of this movie where he's in class talking about the Holocaust and they have that sort of like pie chart of like, people involved in the Holocaust, right? And there's a very small sliver that says homosexuals, and it's one of the last things to be erased. And it's kind of lingering. Yeah, Yeah. and I'm like, okay, you know, like we know where this is kind of going. And then for all the things that you just said, yeah, I mean, like their relationship has like this weird, like couple power dynamic that alters back and forth. And maybe it's not really, and maybe it's incidentally homoerotic and just really just erotic. Yeah, well, I, I feel in like... In a really sick, weird, dark, uncomfortable way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, because they both enjoy having power over another person, clearly, right? And I feel like that march in some scene, weird, intimate ways. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel like that march scene is, like, really evident of that, right? It's almost... When he speeds up and you have just clear shots of his hand going up, right? And that 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 high, like, like yeah. salute, right? It's almost um, climaxy. you know what I mean? In a sexual way, yeah, it's it's kind of erection like in places. Fire right after that, yeah. Boy, be careful! You're playing with fire. And this might be overanalyzation, but it's possibly. But we're two gay men. But it keeps happening, right? I feel like he'd never really had much to say on it as like a moral stance because he couldn't really no back then. But it happens the beginning with their relationship. Happens in the middle with Elias Cody's character propositioning for sex, and it happens the end with the counselor playing with homoeroticism. And all of that as part of like the plot or or manipulations. Well, and I I feel like for for the character of Todd, I I, I feel like sex is not important to him. Like yeah. obviously we know it's not I really, if I was gonna guess, it would be like he's asexual. Yes. But he knows like a true sociopath, he would know how to use sexual sexuality to get what he wants with people right especially with his guidance counselor right he knows how to push these buttons right and like yes like he talks about like divorce and like his son and whatnot but that picture of david schwimmer's character and this son is prominent on the wall behind him like like todd knows how to play people he knows what to say to hit buttons right he may pick up on things and be like hey you may or may not be a homosexual but i can use this against you to get what i want right does that make sense yeah and like he he knows how to to do that i also feel like elias codius's character is kind of overtly homosexual 
at least his performances in certain ways. Like he touches himself in such a way, touches his clothes in such a way that it feels like he's playing a gay man, right? And it's almost like a really weird and inappropriate analogy for like a younger gay learning from an older gay. Yes. You know? Yeah. In a in a really terrible way, too. God. I don't know, because you we've seen stories of like younger gay guys and older gay guys forming bonds and friendships and learning from yeah, each and other. Yeah, not necessarily sexual, obviously. Uh, yeah, not at all. You know, yeah. in a friendship kind of way. And it's just like like learning from the Mentorship past. Or, Mentorship. Yeah. Yes, that's the perfect word for it, right? And this is just like the most bastardized version of mentorship there could possibly be yeah but i mean i i totally get both the homoeroticism and the subtext in this movie and also a little bit of the homophobia that you would feel in it right so i mean like it's i feel like it's present i don't think they were reading too much into it i feel like it's there they just could have gone a lot deeper like you said earlier anyway i think we've talked about that movie should we talk about brian singer (laughs) oh my god yes so for App Pupil, Brian Singer filmed a shower scene in which Todd Bowden, saturated with horrific stories from Kurt Dusseter, imagines his fellow showering students as Jewish prisoners in gas chambers. The scene was filmed at Elliott Middle School in Altadena, California, in 1997, and two weeks later, a 14-year-old extra filed a lawsuit alleging that Brian Singer forced him and other extras to strip naked for the scene. Two boys, 16 and 17 years old, supported the 14-year-old's claim. The boys claimed trauma from the experience, seeking charges against the filmmakers, including infliction of emotional distress, negligence, and invasion of privacy. Allegations were made that the boys were filmed for sexual gratification. The local news shows and national tabloid programs stirred the controversy. A sexual crimes task force that included local, state, and federal personnel investigated the incident. The Los Angeles District Attorney's Office determined that there was no cause to file criminal charges, stating, quote, the suspects were intent on completing a professional film as quickly and efficiently as possible. There is no indication of lewd or abnormal sexual intent, end quote. The scene was filmed again with adult actors so the film could finish on time. The Hollywood Reporter later wrote in 2020, that Brian Singer was one of several defendants named in the suits, which reportedly were settled for an undisclosed sum with the plaintiffs bound by confidentiality agreements. So that's the controversy with this film. And I remember it. And of course, we all want to love our celebrities, the ones that are making things that we like at the time, you know, this movie and X-Men and X-Men 2 and Usual other Brian suspects. Singer movies and yeah. Usual Suspects and and everything else. And he wouldn't, I don't know that he was um, out. I think he might have been out the gay pretty early on. Not at the wasn't. time, though, right? I, th- I think I think everyone knew it. Yeah, it was an open secret. Yeah, like Kevin Spacey. I mean, still, everyone knew it. Yeah, but it, like Kevin Spacey didn't come out, come out until like the whole controversy dropped on him. Yeah. But Brian Singer was out like in the early two thousands, and that's how he got Ian McKellen. Also, because he alluded to the the whole X Men story, you know, being mm-hmm. about homosexuality, homosexuality, or in the sixties, races. I mean, I latched onto X Men because of sure. the homosexual. It's all about subtext or whatever. It's your own personal experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sure, but I feel like, like, at the time when this movie came out, like, I I feel like I knew about this kind of, you know, but not really. But if I feel like, as his career went on, like Brian Singer, more and more seemed to be like not such a good guy. 
Well, it went, you know, I heard some things during like X2 or something yeah. where uh-huh. uh, Halle Berry was like, mm, I don't want to deal with him. He's showing up to, to work kind of like drugged or whatever. He's a little weird. You hear like weird stories like that every once in a while, you know, but like it kind of lulled. Right. And this is like almost 20 years because in 2014, there was a bunch of lo- there was two lawsuits as well. Yeah. Right. So in April 2014, Brian Singer was accused in a civil lawsuit of sexual assault of a minor. According to the suit filed by uh, the attorney, Brian Singer is alleged to have drugged and raped actor and model Michael Egan in Hawaii after meeting him at parties hosted by convicted sex offender, convicted sex offender, Mark Collins Rector in the late 1990s. So this is way after the, you know, the, I guess the, the, after seven years or three years or whatever the fuck the thing is, you can't sue anymore. I don't know. Um, Limitation statute. Statute. Statute of limitations. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know what this was about, if it was, you know, trying to collect things, you know, into more. But in in uh, May of 2014, another lawsuit was filed um, by the same attorney on behalf of, a, of another anonymous British man. And both Brian Singer and producer Gary Goddard, who was also named separately in the first case, were accused of sexually assaulting, quote, John Doe number 117, quote. So that was another thing. And there's another allegedly, you know, type of situation because things are being settled out of court. Right. Right. And so in 2017, there was another lawsuit. Right. In December, Cesar Sanchez Guzman filed a lawsuit in Washington against Singer, alleging that he had been raped at the age of 17 by the director in 2003. In June 2019, Sanchez Guzman's bankruptcy trustee, Nancy James, recommended uh, that a 150,000 settlement be approved, citing the absence of evidence that Singer attended the yacht party where the alleged assault took place. Singer's attorney, Andrew Brettler, said that Singer has maintained his innocence and that the decision to resolve the matter with the bankruptcy trustee was purely a business one. Oh, of course he would say that. Right. And so in 2019... Oh, my God. The latest, right? Uh, Allegations. Uh, So these are not lawsuits or, or criminal charges, but allegations. So he's never been charged. Right. Right. So or or convicted. So on January 23rd, 2019, Alex French and Maximilian Potter published an investigative report in The Atlantic in which four more men alleged that Singer sexually assaulted them when they were underage. In response to the men's allegations, Singer denied any association with them and described the journalists who continued to keep the stories alive as homophobic. So in response, Glad withdrew Bohemian Rhapsody's nomination for the year's Media Award for Outstanding Film, disagreeing with his statement and that all allegations deserved a proper investigation. They do. His name was then removed from the BAFTA nominations for the same movie. And his film Red Sonia was removed from the production schedule for that production company. Not Not a big one, but... So his career has been kind of stalled and over because of all these allegations, because of everything kind of happening around Me Too. I hesitate. To really, I know that when like one thing happens, two things happen, like with Michael Jackson and a number of others, people can really pile on looking for money and fame and things like that. But many times it also is true, right? But I don't like the court of opinion. I want, if they are investigations and there have been investigations, I want them to end in some sort of criminal charge, you know, so that these people can be actually guilty versus like, I'm going to look at all this information, circumstantial evidence, and say that this person is guilty whatsoever. 
or I, I just don't like the public opinion. You know what I mean? I'd rather it be definitive. Yes. And I feel like in criminal charges and criminal court cases, we, we tend to get those resolutions, right? Guilty or not guilty is at the end of the day, what we strive for in those things. Like a lot of these things seem very civil, right? And so, yeah, it's also hard to, to, to work these cases because it's all, all he said, she said. And one party has a lot more money than the other. Well, and at the end of the day, a civil case has very little to do about guilt or or not guilt, right? It's all about like what damages yeah, you're looking for. Yeah, limitations, I guess, prevented the criminal charge, right? In some of these things, yes. And I, I feel like there should never be, there should not be a statute of limitations on anything sort of se- sexual. Like sexual um, violence needs to be right up there with, with like murder. Yeah, because like, can it be proved? You know, that's that's what the tough thing is. So it's like, gun to my head i'm gonna believe the you know believe the people that are making these allegations yeah always the victim i mean there's long you know strings but it's like it's tough because it's like this this ruins careers you know it's like there's always that inkling feeling like what if this is like people dogpiling because that's happened before you know um i don't know how rare but it's happened and so there's always that inkling possibility that like that small possibility that someone's career and life is over based on this movie even like the guy said you know all i have to do is allege all i have to do is allege and your, your life is over like that was part of the story how prophetic for his career although i mean i tend to be in the camp that if people people like person after person is coming forward and saying like this has happened you know what i mean and it's typically surrounding the same person, you know, like alleged perpetrator of these particular crimes. And he was crimes. fired from Bohemian Rhapsody, by the way. Like he's, yeah. he's had lots of problems. And I, I don't feel like he's going to have much of a career moving forward. I don't think so either. And I don't know that it's much of a loss. I don't, I don't think it is much of a loss really. Cause I, I was watching this movie and I'm, I'm like, okay, so what if Brian Singer's career do I absolutely just love? I just have empathy for people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, but I I tend to... I don't love a single one of his movies. Uh, yeah, I don't either, really. So, I mean, I would have maybe said I liked X-Men before, but even then I had problems with it, even when it came out, you know? But still, like, my whole point that I'm trying to drive is, like, the question of, do we cover movies where, like, the director may be a sexual predator, or if we ever talk about things like, say, Jeepers Creepers 2, yeah, you know, uh, or Jeepers Creepers 1, one you know, yeah. I guess the same director... Um, do we talk about movies where the director or someone else in it is an actually convicted, convicted, you know, because oh, he criminal. was convicted before he made Jeepers Creepers. That's right. You know, and that's the thing is that like we have talked about in this podcast before, we've talked about films by Polanski, right? Who has like fled and sought asylum against charges like his entire life, right? Lived in France and done all these things, still making movies, right? And at some point you have to separate the product or the art from the person who is helming it. I agree too, especially when we're dealing with like, I'm not going to go and buy a fucking painting by Hitler. You know what no, I mean? No, this no. is a little different because hundreds, if not thousands of people work on these films. That's right. Right. And like Ian McKellen's work is, is in here, you know, and Brad Renfro, the late Brad Renfro's work is in here and some really important work I think is in here. Yeah. And I don't want to just like dismiss a whole piece of art made by hundreds or thousands of people based on one person's life. But the fact that we're sitting here talking about these allegations and these lawsuits is important, right? We're saying that, yes, like this man has done some questionable things. I think, I think it's fair to say that some of these things are probably true. You know what I mean? Court, court of public opinion doesn't mean a lot or shouldn't, but 
I think that there's basis for reality in all of that. Me and too. Me too. I feel like he has done some of Hashtag these things. Me too. Hashtag you too. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, Brian Singer. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I don't want to come out and say that he's just like a terrible person or anything I don't like care that. Enough. I, I, I don't care don't. enough about him. It's absolutely it. I'm sure that he's done some really bad things and I feel like he should be punished for it, you know, but like that time will come. Like this man is not going to change his ways ever. And eventually he will get some sort of comeuppance for anything that he's he done in the past, has, whether he did it or not. You know, I mean, his yeah. career is basically over. You know, I don't know when these people are going to work. I don't know if Kevin Spacey is ever going to work again. He's not convicted of anything. The Jeepers no. Creepers guy, that's like if he was convicted. He theoretically, th- there's a philosophy here that they uh, they serve their time, right? They they pay their dues back to society, right? But do they then deserve to go back into a privileged position of a very public film director or in a situation where they could possibly commit these crimes again? Yeah, you know what I mean? I, I mean, I feel like like these allegations have followed Brian Singer throughout his career. Yeah. Plain and simple. And watching this movie last night, I felt uncomfortable watching that fucking shower scene. You know what I mean? Knowing that, knowing knowing what his past is like, knowing people well, have said about reshot. him. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know. But also, I knew it was reshot. But I was watching it, and I was just like, I feel really uncomfortable watching this, knowing what people have said about him, and knowing that he's settled out of court yeah. and things like that. Although, like, if it was like a thing, like a trend in his movies to show a lot of male nakedness, like I think this is the only one. No, but it's kind of gratuitous, right? Well, it's not really. I don't know. It's not, you know. And then um, I want to say, you know, it, I'm I'm almost a little bit more uncomfortable knowing that Tarantino has a foot fetish, and then seeing every single one of his films, like <laughs> zooming in on the woman's feet. Okay, like, yeah, you're right. You know, like that's a little bit weird. I mean, if we're gonna compare this to like Carrie. Right. You know, I mean, we had an opening scene in a movie with naked women running around in slow-mo. Right. A very slow-mo shower scene. It's very De Palma. Right. I, I don't know. I I feel less uncomfortable watching Carrie than I do watching this. Yeah. But I think it's circumstantial. Behind like De Palma is known for other abuse. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I don't know. I mean, neither one probably have the best track record as far as like, they're past, but we're going to talk about it. It's important to talk about, but it's not going to stop us from watching these movies. Never, never. I will. I will always watch these movies. I mean, eventually we're going to talk about Jeepers Creepers on this podcast. It's going to happen. Yep. And we'll have the same conversation about the director of that movie as we're having about Brian Singer. And we have very similar opinions about that. And so it'd be interesting because a lot of people do not, a lot of podcasts will not touch these things with a 10 foot pole. Right. And so it'd be interesting to know what you think listeners. Oh, of course. And what your opinion is on touching these movies with a 10 foot pole. I mean, because so many people made these movies. As long as you don't lick that pole. We are, I will never. That was really fucking heavy. Do you have some fun facts for me? Not really. I mean, there's some. Okay. So here we go. The, the ones I stepped on, right? Or this one that you stepped on. The movie is based on novella by Stephen King from the book of short stories called Different Seasons, which also includes The Body, which became Stand By Me from 1986, and Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, which became The Shawshank Redemption from 1994. Both are excellent novellas. So this has four novellas in it, right? Those two, After Pupil and The Breathing Method, which I've already mentioned in this episode. And three of those are just fantastic pieces of Stephen King fiction. Stand By Me and The Shawshank Redemption are two of the best Stephen King adaptations. Stand By Me is like his most horror adjacent to me. Which one? Stand By Me. Is most horror adjacent? The most horror adjacent, like the most adjacently adjacent. Yeah, it's barely even horror. Far away, but not yeah. through the binoculars of horror. 
But I mean, he's good when he does that. I yes. mean, and the the breathing method is by far out of these this collection the most horror, right? And it surprises me to this day that that has not become a movie hmm. in in some way because it is the most straight up horror. But I I really loved that collection of stories. I just liked this one the least. And I don't know why. It just really turned me the wrong way. The only other piece of King work that I don't like as much as this one is, um, I forget the name of it, but it's also kind of a novella about a kid who like holds his class hostage by gun. And I was just like, I don't know. I just get like these, it's, it's not good subject matter. It doesn't make me feel good at all. Yeah. There's also no, no protagonist in that story too. But no. anyway, I'm getting way too kingy, kingy about it. And clingy. And clinging. Clinging. So uh, Sir Ian McKellen admitted he was surprised to be asked to play a 75-year-old Kurt Dussender since he was only 57 at the time of filming. And Brad Renfro was only 15, playing 16. Well, I mean, 57. Usually you have these, like, you know, 25-year-olds or 30-year-olds playing these high schoolers, you know. He looked super young, too. Yeah. In that. And 57 is the reciprocal of 75. So it's. But he was always cast in these roles that were actually like older than him, weirdly, because he held himself in a certain way. So Michael Byrne, ironically, who was, you know, played the uh, Jewish Holocaust survivor in this movie, played a prominent Nazi in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And of course, Ian McKellen played a Holocaust survivor as Magneto in X Men. That's right. So they swapped. My God. Irony. Mm -hmm. Dramatic irony. And lastly. The American Humane Society was on set during the scene where Ian McKellen's character, Dinker or Ducinder, attempts to burn a live domestic cat in his gas oven at home. According to the American Humane Society's uh, No Animals Were Harmed database, the scene was shot in cuts using a real and an animatronic cat. <laughs> really? Because you see it's fucking pop. Like it's, I know, it gets burnt. He's shaking it like it's so well edited. Again, this movie is really well edited. It's so well edited, like you see its paws hitting the burners with like lighting a little bit on fire with the fur. And reacting. And I was like, Jesus Christ. Yes. Like it really like freaked me out a little bit. And I was like covering my little kitty's faces yeah. while they were watching this. It's a little too realistic. Yeah. I have two new kittens, by the way. Yes, you do. And I'm sure that's two little fur fur goblins. There's, there's hardly any fur. <laughs> there is. There's very little fur going on. <laughs> they're 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 almost furless. Devon Rexes is what they are. Those are fun. Is Out People a horror movie? It's trying to be. Yes. I mean it's it's adjacent, clearly. Yet it won Best Horror Film of the Saturn Awards. Somehow I need to look back and see what it was up against. It's weird. This one slim pickens that fucking year. Because this I would have assumed this is horror adjacent going in, and then I watched it and I realized, yes, it's a lot more horror than I yeah. thought. But like we said earlier in the episode, I mean some real life horror going on in here. Like this situation could possibly happen. Even though the straight up murders in this are like less like horror movie and more just like Happens there. Drama, the thriller yeah. type of situation. I mean, and there's some like, there's some lingering things. There's a little boys from Brazil going on in here. You know what I mean? Like when you get some Nazi war criminal, like living in society, it, we've seen all this before. It's happened before in yeah, horror and horror adjacent stuff. Clearly. Yeah. Um, uh, were you scared while watching this? Mm, no. Yeah. I don't think I was. I'm either. not even sure it was the first time around. Yeah. I can't remember being scared. I wasn't scared this time. No. I was sad. There was some, there's some tension, for sure. Yeah. Out of five stars, what would you rate at people? I gave it a four. Wow. Because it's, it's again, I think I used this phrase once. I forget what we were talking about. Maybe Midsummer, But it's a movie where 
the sum of its parts are better than the whole <laughs> you know yeah like, acting is so good the cinematography is so good the music and editing is so good the direction is great you know um but it's missing something you know it's, it's it doesn't achieve becoming greater than the sum of its parts the sum of its parts are greater than the whole yeah I'm, i would agree with that i gave this movie three and a half stars okay um and i i gave it an extra half star because of the performances and because of some of the editing and the way that the movie looks mm-hmm. right um and the way that it was acted i thought it was really really good but like largely it's missing a lot for me it's missing a vital piece that could have like brought it home to an oscar for real you know and that and the fact that i can say that it makes it gives it a 4 because it's missing something that would be given a 4 and a half or a 5 and that's a vital piece and right. I, I almost gave it a 3 and a half I also felt a little bored in parts of this movie. I was like, something needs to fucking happen. I was a little hesitant in the first like 10, 15 minutes. And then I just got into it. I was there for the rest of it. It took me, it took me much longer than that to really get into it. But I was just like, come on now. Like I, I, I need something to ramp up. I need this to be more horror adjacent than what it's presenting itself to be right now. Right. And I just, I, I felt kind of bored with all of it. I was just like, I don't like these two characters really. I don't like anyone in this movie. Mm. And so I felt uninvested yeah. and that makes me lower my rating quite a bit. Okay. So I'm aligned. So finally, who's the hottest guy in that pupil? You know, normally I'd say Elias Codius, but he's never hot. But he could be. I don't think he's unattractive. I think that he's probably my choice. That or the random gym teacher when he was finally doing better his grades, like standing there for like two seconds in his short shorts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Gosh, there's this. I don't know if there's slim pickings, but it's like a sea of so-so choices. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say there's slim pickings. At least Codius. I mean, I I don't think that he's unattractive. Yeah, I, I find him to be attractive in his own way or whatever. Old factory vibe in this movie. But. Yeah. <laughs> you look stanky. <laughs> <laughs> but you clearly are okay with gay sex so yay mm. I don't know Pride Month <laughs> yay. <laughs> yay feeling the pride <laughs> homo Jason. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Apt Pupil. As always, we want to know what you think about this movie and our conversation about it. You can find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Oh, you're playing with fire. You took what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Look my 10-foot pole. <laughs> we have more Ian McKellen coming for you this month. And next week, we're going to be talking about gods and monsters. Or adjacent. Not even. But certainly homo adjacent. It's Ian McKellen and uh, monsters is in the title. And Brendan Fraser is in this movie as in his hottest ever, really, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, then we get to see him as most unattractive over on Patreon when we go full circle. After talking about James Whale in uh, Gods and Monsters, we're going to talk about Brendan Fraser in The Whale over on Patreon. 
we are just taking that red string and stringing it all over our wall and making all these connections and just doing these things. So head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers, join our family over there, get our bonus episode on the whale and the summer, help us vote in polls and things like that. Join the conversation and we'll read your name on shooting the flames. Well, Robert. Yes. I've got to go hunt my whale. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go off and try to have some Nazi lists. Sweet dreams. This is two recordings in as many weeks we are talking about Nazis. Where there's dogs that get deaded and cats that get deaded. Although the cat got away. The cat got away. We could all sleep soundly knowing that Michael Bay won that Saturn Award for Best Director. That's what I'm good. (laughs) But yes. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs>